Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulo those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, good morning, Project Kazimierz listener, whatever time of the day or night it is. It's 2018 in a, in a country called the United Kingdom in Europe. Um, if you're listening 100 years in the future, that's where we are now. Today I'm with Alex van Sommeron. Good afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon. Now, I could do a jumbled, incompetent effort to introduce Alex, but rather than do that, Alex, could you introduce yourself in the way you would if you met someone in a broadly businessy context, for example, a, 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 you know, an event or a a conference as opposed to a stranger on a train who might be a bit overwhelmed by what you're about to say. <laughs> uh, so I'm Alex Van Summeren. I'm managing partner for early stage investing at Amadeus Capital Partners. And so that's a venture capital firm of about 21 years standing based between Cambridge and London here in the UK. Okay. Now, I first met Alex. Well, I, I first came across Alex when he was running a workshop at a one week, a week long uh, entrepreneurship course at the Judge Business School in Cambridge, and I think it was about 2007 or 2008 from memory, so about 10 years ago. And I remember then you were describing your journey through a business called Encipher. And there's a, there's a few things I can remember about that that I'll come back to, but could you tell me about Encipher? And also, we're, we're interested in the entrepreneurial journey. Um, as I understand it, that was one of your your early ventures, but what was Encipher? And did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur before you set it up? Encipher was a uh, business built to uh, solve a problem that the internet had as it grew very quickly in the late 90s and uh, into the noughties, where security of websites depended on encryption, the protocol called SSL, which gives the little padlock icon to show when a website is secure, uses a lot of horsepower at the server end uh, of websites. And so getting enough customers served every second on a busy website was really a problem. And Encipher made a product which plugged into the server, took over the maths behind the cryptography that made that security work and helped it to go much faster. And that meant more people could be served more quickly. So we all got our uh, you know goods to the checkout faster and the company got paid faster. And that was a, a very successful business and we were lucky to build it in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And that, w- one of the things I remember from your, your workshop or talk was how you, you told me, you told us then that um, someone said they'd give you the money to start the business provided you produced the business plan and you went down King's Parade and went into Heifers and bought a book called How to Write a Business Plan, which led, led me to believe that possibly you weren't you weren't necessarily an experienced 
entrepreneur at the stage you got things going. Well, I think, but, but I don't know. I don't know because I. Well, I that's it. that's actually very interesting. In fact, Insightful was my fourth business, mm. and so the only respect in which I was an inexperienced entrepreneur was that I'd never had to write a business plan. Mm-hmm. In every other respect, uh, I had had by that stage um, probably twenty years of business building behind me, and I'd always done it for myself and with my friends and therefore never really had to do any paperwork like that. So it was only when venture capitalists became involved that they expected me to have a, a plan. And I thought, well, I better find out how to make such a plan. And I bought the book. In mm. fact, it's called The 24-Hour Business Plan. And I still have it on my bookshelf. And, uh, you know, I think I probably spent slightly more than 24 hours on it. Mm. But I did write my first business plan. And um, slightly to my amazement, that was enough to persuade the venture capitalists to give me a million pounds. And didn't they get 60% of the business or some rather unlikely large slug of it in return? The offer originally was that they would buy a third of the business, 33% for that million pounds. But then it turned out that there was a bit of a tail and that actually the principal behind the money, a gentleman called Terry Matthews, a Welsh uh, entrepreneur and now billionaire, um, he basically said, you know, this is all very well. You can have 33% for a million pounds which would be a perfect good deal, in my opinion, for a you know, paper startup with no product. But he then decided, I, I think, frankly, we can say changed his mind, that um, he wanted another third of the equity to go to the company that he ran, Newbridge Networks. And he extolled the great benefits of this company owning another third of our business. Um, and that would be a great reseller channel, but mm-hmm. it would add all kinds of value. And, of course, we weren't impressed with this proposal. But in the end, we accepted it because it became clear that if we didn't actually accept it, we weren't going to get any money at all. And I think an important entrepreneurial maxim that I've taken to heart is take the money. Yes, take the money. And if, if it's the best available deal, it may be a shit deal, but it's the best available deal. And it wasn't a shit deal. You got a million, you got the money to get you going. And in the end, it probably spurred us to make the business much more valuable because we were so annoyed about having lost so much of the equity. Mm. So we sort of compensated by trying even harder. And in the end, in fact, it was a fantastic success. Mm-hmm. So although we probably made slightly more money for Terry Matthews and Newbridge Networks than they entirely deserved, mm-hmm. we, we did okay for ourselves. Yes, and there's more than one fair... There isn't such a thing as a perfectly fair deal anyway, is there? Exactly. Um, so I, I looked at your LinkedIn and you were at one of the famous uh, British public schools, i.e. for non-British aware listeners, that means private schools, Eton. And... Did you go straight into business? So, which which means either you're extremely brainy and a scholar, or else you come from a, a background where there's a bit of privilege. Were, were you in the latter or the former category? And did you go into business straight after school, or did you have a traditional traditional route? What what was your and the the background to this question is we're interested in the entrepreneurial journey. At what stage did you know you're going to go off the traditional traditional train lines of a regular? A predictable, ordinary I started, life. I started working uh, when I was 14 in the school holidays for our local computer company here in Cambridge, Acorn Computer. And at that point, they'd made their first uh, single box computer, the Acorn Atom, and I was lucky enough to get one. And This must um, have been about 1979, 1980. 1979, 80, very yeah. well done. So um, I got my mitts on one by asking. I didn't uh, pay for it or have it bought for me. I barged my way into Acorn and Herman Hauser gave me a computer basically to get rid of me. And that meant that I worked all of my holiday time with Acorn for many years. And when I, and at that point I was at, at school. So you were, you were 
You'd obviously been interested in coding or something with computers prior to that. Exactly. So played with pocket calculators and, you know, got interested in computers at the time that they were starting to be accessible. Um, and to your question, uh, when it came to 17 and A-levels and the probability of going to university, um, th those A-levels, the English exams that get you into university, I actually flunked all my exams and I uh, went straight from school to work full-time at ACORN at 17. I never went to university. Um, and I was happy with that decision because I felt that the outcome one was working towards, you know, the point of maybe going to university was to get a job. But I'd already got a job. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took the job and uh, never looked back. Mm -hmm. And w w was your family environment supportive? Were you going against a kind of, were your parents completely at ease with that? Or was this a bit of a... I don't know, about, you, you... I don't know about completely at ease, but, but the, the key point, I think, is my dad also fancied himself an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. had stopped working for large corporations to start his own business, ran his own business from uh, literally the you know second bedroom mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea that I might, you know, find my own way and, you know, be entrepreneurial was definitely not a problem, even if, you know, every parent, I think, would be um, upset if you throw away your exams and, you know, don't go to college when the school says you could. Okay. So, I mean, so for young, quite a lot of our audience uh, are younger people. So for people listening to this now, I mean, obviously, one of the, the enormous change now is, of course, the internet, where if you want to acquire a skill and you're motivated, you can probably start today. Not you probably, you can certainly start today and you don't need to be in the hallowed halls of Cambridge or Oxford or MIT to get going at all. But if someone listening to this is you know, reasonably, reasonably intelligent and hasn't flunked their A-levels. Do you think following your tracks and going and getting a job and getting really good at something independently is a, a viable choice given that you can, that you can go down that route? Or is it well, hard to I say? Think, uh, I'm going to answer the question a slightly different way. It's very common for entrepreneurs to not feel that they fit within the normal educational mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those kinds of people. I'm impatient. Uh, I'm curious. I wanted to be able to go and explore the world. I could get paid perfectly well because I had taught myself something about computers. And so it seemed to me that, you know, those were all the things that mattered. Um, I don't think the opportunity or difficulty of entrepreneurship is really all that different now from at any point in the past. I think you're right that you can certainly acquire skills in different ways. But in the end, you know, watching a few YouTube videos doesn't tell you how to do something. I'm a, more of a believer in the 10,000 hours of practice mm -hmm. kind of model. That's, um, the, that's the Malcolm Gladwell book, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. In fact, there's, a, there's a, someone who I, I was just writing to today. He gave a talk at the TEDx Youth um, Conference organized by my son. He's a TEDx Youth Organizer from Warsaw. Uh -huh. And he, he can code and does earn money doing that. And he... Um, his TEDx talk was called How to Learn Anything. And what he said was that, um, of course, you can go online and start finding courses on anything, but you need to find a roadmap. And, right. so, and so he said, and so he described the process to find the roadmap, which was usually how to learn X plus Reddit. And then within Reddit, you'd find your... You find, but, yeah, but he said, you have, to find, you have to find the roadmap and then you have to follow it. And right. other people fail at the following. Yeah, roadmap. exactly. Yeah. You know, so I don't, I don't think there really are shortcuts. I think some information is easy to come by. But I mean, I actually went to libraries and looked at books to teach myself some of what I know. I bought lots of books yes. uh, and I read them. And I probably did the computer science degree in mm. real life that I didn't do at university. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. And and now sort of jumping forward, I, there's one thing that I remember. Another thing I remember from your from your Ignite talk about the role of luck, and you described how you were wandering around the lobby of a hotel in California, and you you could say you were lucky to meet the people from. I think it was Fidelity. Very well but, but you um, but you. It wasn't an accident that you were there. Do, do, do you, so can you just reflect on what you think about the role of luck in business? Because a lot of business people who are successful are quite modest and they say, you know, I was very lucky. But do you think luck really has a play or a role uh, or do you I, make your own? I think we've all got to accept that, um, you know, stuff happens uh, outside <coughs> your control. And uh, so some people never have uh, the stuff happen around them that makes their lives easier some people have it happen and don't grab the opportunity and the people who are successful entrepreneurs are the people in the middle of that Venn diagram they're the people who are able to see the opportunity in the circumstances that they find themselves in and take it and you have to reach out and take it and so that's where the you know old cliche version is that you know luck favors the prepared or whichever version you like You've got to be willing to uh, grab the opportunity when it's there, but you do also have to have those opportunities come to you. So, as you say, the story that uh, I told you then about uh, getting the first business from Fidelity by being in the lobby of a hotel in San Francisco where a conference that was relevant was taking place. You know, I had to go to San Francisco. I had to be in the lobby, but I also, you know, knew that I had to nail some customers and I grabbed them as they went by by reading their badges and if they looked interesting, I you know got them excited about my product. So that's that's that is the entrepreneurial process is to capture those opportunities when they present themselves. That's right, and and so not be, and I, this is something that just being ready to go up and talk to strangers in certain circumstances you can do a great deal online, but if you can't actually present your idea to a stranger in a way that they want to listen, that right. eliminates you from a lot of business. And I think that means that that that's how we come to recognise the difference between people who are great innovators who often are the kind of people who are really good at some technical thing, but not actually very comfortable engaging with customers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the kinds of people like me who are more sales oriented, who are extroverts, who are happy to go and randomly mm -hmm. start conversations with people they've never met before and try to sell them something. And you need that combination within a business. It doesn't all have to come from a single person. It very rarely does. Actually, you end up in a team where different people represent different skills. I was lucky in all of my business success to work with my brother. My brother had the traditional route. He, in fact, had a more challenging educational background. He's dyslexic, but he actually ended up at Cambridge. He took a PhD, got a first in computer science at Cambridge. And, you know, he's a top class intellectual of the traditional mold. But we work together really well because we have complementary skills. Yes, and I'm sure you're aware of Gary Vaynerchuk, that, and you know he talks a great deal about self-awareness and you know, recognizing that in yourself, and then not being gutted if you don't have the salesy personality, but finding finding a business partner who does right. is, is is the obvious workaround. Exactly, and you know, so that's that's the that's the smart thing to do. And if you're very lucky, I mean, it's fairly unusual, you can do that with a member of your family or, or two members of your family. I had my wife working in the business as well. She had a marketing background. And if you're so introverted, you can't even imagine persuading someone to go into business with you to be your business partner. Then, then it's going to be hard to it's, be, it's, it's gonna be hard. successful. It's going it? to be hard. And now you're on the other side. As a, in Amadeus, you're the fund is early stage fund, I believe, seed level. So you're looking at people in the way that someone might have once looked at you with right. your business plan. Right. And so, so 
you know, obviously, do you demand a business plan? But what what are the most important things you look for in the people for an eye to actually in the people you meet, as opposed to in the quality of the idea? We, we, we try to we try to spot the kind of people who behave in the way I was just describing. We try and spot the teams of people who have a good mix of skills across the team. It doesn't have to be complete, but it has to have some representation of the various qualities you talked about, and it has to have people in it who you get the impression are going to crawl over broken glass to get to the prize. Mm-hmm. They're going to do whatever it takes. And they're sufficiently fired up about how right they are about their thing that they're going to make the success of mm-hmm. even a very difficult situation. And then the next two things are how big the market opportunity could be for whatever the thing is. And then the final piece is and how clever the innovation is, how much defensible intellectual property it's got. So IP, IP is important for you? I'm a tech investor, a deep technology investor i'm very ip focused i'm not interested in apps on mobile phones i'm not interested in shoe shopping websites i'm not interested in marketplaces i'm interested in crunchy science and you know solutions to hard problems with innovative technology okay um and so if you look back and think about lessons you've learned and maybe things that you wish you'd learned earlier are other other slight major major moments where you thought wow now i know that i'm going to do things differently are the sort of um, are, are the lessons you've learned or the things you wish you'd done differently over the last 20, 30 years of your business career? Um, I think, I mean, 20, 20 hindsight is obviously fantastic. You sort of look back and, um, and, and say, uh, well, you know, uh, now that I've come on 10 years or something, you know, I might have done that differently. Um, I mean, look, I, I think I've made lots of mistakes just like everybody does. And uh, so, you know, the list is endless. Um, I probably didn't maintain good relations with my investors all the time and actually it turns out that's a good thing to do and if you don't do it then it makes your life a lot harder um i probably negotiated poor deals with customers i probably didn't treat all of my staff as well as i wish i could have done you know but in the end i think i mean it's a journey which is not a straight line and you are just going to uh, have to learn as you go and frankly if you're self-aware enough to say, wow, I wish I'd done that better, then, you know, actually that's probably nine-tenths of the battle to be able to do it right next time. Mm-hmm. So relations with investors, clients and staff, these are some of the key areas. And they're all people things, yeah, right? All, I mean, the people. technical stuff you can always, you know, read a book, hire somebody to, to do for you. Mm-hmm. But the people interactions are, in the end, you know, how the world really works. And actually the challenge there is, um, there's always probably things you you could do better or differently, mm-hmm. but um, you know you have to work with the you know circumstances you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you do quite a lot of things apart from your day job. You're on you've been on various government committees. I think is UK TI and the Prince's Trust and um, a museum. There's a local museum here. Mm-hmm. How, how do you decide how to spend your time? Because I think time management for successful people is a really interesting thing. So I, I do. You, do you have like a really tight diary and a process or do you just go with your gut feel or a bit of both? Or? Um, well, I think uh, the, you, the go max- to, you, you go to TED conferences as well. So you're, I, you're- I used to go to TED conferences. I, mean, I, I go to diverse conferences. I, I, I actually stopped going to anything that I've been to sort of more than three times. Mm-hmm. I, I, I make a point of just saying that was interesting. Now I'll do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I think the first thing is I'm constantly trying to mix it up. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the, the next thing is um, yes, I, I have an insanely busy diary. The, the problem with being a venture capitalist is that 
everybody thinks they want your time and nobody has any respect for whether or not you actually have any spare. <laughs> so um, everybody believes that they deserve an hour and, you know, surely you can fit them in sometime soon. And um, actually, you know, the business of being a venture capitalist is principally about saying yes to opportunities. So generally, I just have to say yes. And then it turns out that the diary is completely full. Um, so that's my day spoken for. I do do some things with my evenings, um, which aren't work. And um, those are really just about personal passions and interests. And, and they too evolve. You know, I worked with the Princess Trust for many years as a patron and donor. Uh, I helped mentor uh, people who needed help. And, you know, the Princess Trust is very good at that. But uh, actually, I've moved my attention on to, to other things since more recently. I've been working with ActionAid, who are particularly focused. I supported a project in Kenya on helping women who have problems with violence and uh, need a channel through which to report violence so they can get the help that they deserve. Um, and we use a bit of technology using text messaging to uh, enable that to, to work better. And it's actually become a really satisfying and successful project. And then, as you say, I work with uh, the museum nearby at Kettle's Yard here in Cambridge, which is a beautiful uh, modern and contemporary art museum. Uh, so it has a mixture of a, a you know, sort of old collection from sort of late 20th century uh, UK and um, you know, more, more kind of brand new stuff that's uh, constantly changing. And I helped to raise some money for it. And I, I guess, you know, part of that is selfish. I, I think it's fun and interesting. And, and part of it, obviously, is just about, you know, being a citizen in the community. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for that. There's just a, a couple of fin final questions. If someone's listening and they, they sort of f feel they're entrepreneurial, but they haven't found their idea yet, and they're aware of the fact that if you don't have a great idea, you shouldn't start just not doing anything. Is, is there any sort of piece of advice that you think is like a kind of core thing that entrepreneurs need to someone listening to you could benefit from your life's experience one one piece of advice you could give to someone maybe at an earlier stage in their life than you are i think that principally it's about grabbing a chance when your gut tells you that it's there so you know you will be an entrepreneur if you are the kind of person who says i really think somebody would buy you know a product which does x or a solution to problem y and you actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key thing is not to box yourself in and say, you know, somebody else has probably thought of that. You know, uh, somebody else will do that better than me. Uh, I, I don't have time. It, you're only really an entrepreneur if when you have an inspiration, and you will have inspirations from time to time, but if you actually follow through on them, and if you do that and run with it, the worst that happens is you turn out to be wrong and you fail and you can start again. The best that happens is that you'll turn it into a great success. Okay, so that's very very good advice. Um, is there anything, like looking forward, is there anything that's going to happen in the next five or ten years that you think will, like, are you sort of a forecast of sort of big technological, social, political changes coming that you think really might change the world for the better or for the worse that you're worried about? So, like, on the macro scale, like, like the future of the world or the future of Britain, Europe, Cambridge, wherever you're footprint is and personally is there anything that's challenging you is there any big change coming up in your life or something that you want to do or you might manage to do that you know some ambition that you're still working on that hasn't yet been cracked well i think that um you can't have a uh, european podcast without talking about brexit and uh, i certainly think that uh, we're going to make our lives very much harder in the uk if we make it more difficult for people from europe to come to the uk and join our companies and bring their brains and their sweat and help make our companies more successful. 
So I'm incredibly frustrated and unhappy about that uh, development, and it looks as if it's really going to happen. Flown from Krakow to demonstrate in the march in London right. the day after tomorrow. So I, I couldn't agree with you. We're more. on the we're on the same page. So I think that you know that's uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I, I think all human beings on the planet should be worried about climate change, and I think that we are already experiencing with you know strangely unseasonal weather and hurricanes and so forth some of the implications of that. And uh, so we need to, you know, very much throw the gears into reverse and, and really make an effort to do something to change that situation. And that is not being helped by uh, you know, obtuse people uh, like the President of the United States, you know, trying to pretend that it's not uh, something that's caused by humans. So that's, you know, problem number two. Um, but the good news is, I think that the um, general uh, opportunity for people in the world is actually being enhanced by what we can do with machines, what we can do with software, what we can do with robotics, uh, and the experiences that we can have uh, with some kinds of technology uh, like augmented reality. So I'm actually a big believer in some of the positive benefits uh, of technology, and I think that they have the capacity to help everybody on the planet. The final challenge is to actually enable them to really be accessible to everybody on the planet. At the moment, there are billions of people who don't have access to fresh water and, you know, safe housing, let alone the internet, never mind, you know, virtual reality goggles. So we actually have, you know, a lot more important work to do, frankly, than investing in technology in making the world a better place for everybody. And for me, that's, you know, ultimately more important. That's why I spend some of my time doing that, besides needing to pay the bills through my day job. Mm -hmm. So that's the bit of the macro. And what about you personally? Are there any challenges, unrealized things that when you because quite often if you ask a successful person the really interesting thing is what's next because it's almost like once you've done it that's banked is there anything in your future that you're sort of well the great thing about the, the huge privilege of being uh, a venture capital investor is that you get to meet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of smart people who are incredibly energized uh, about their thing their idea and they're working super hard to make it a success and I think I get a lot of pleasure from interacting with those people and I learn a lot from those people so that's that's fantastic. So um, no, I don't think there's any kind of you know really big thing that I'm trying to achieve um, that you know I I'd be uh, trying to share. I think it's more uh, I'd love to be able to continue to do the thing that I do. I've done it uh, now for uh, eight years, coming on to nine years. I'm hoping that I'll be doing it in another ten years. That'll be the longest I've done any one mm. kind of thing in my mm. whole life. Okay, so we've, I, I was going to ask you if you enjoyed your job, you've answered that question. Absolutely. <laughs> completely. I, I totally do, and I couldn't get up in the morning and do it every day if I didn't. Yeah, okay, so, um, so well, thank you very much for being, being, being on the show. If, if someone listening to this uh, wanted to get in touch with you, either for a business project or anything else, what would be your suggested way of them doing that? Uh, well, the first thing I would suggest is that they actually read my LinkedIn profile, which is easy to find. And there's only one Alex Van Sommeren that's a venture capitalist in Amadeus Cal Partners. And the specific answer is that my email address is easily found there and uh, they should just send me email. Um, not a uh, invitation to friend them on LinkedIn when I've never met them. That's not something I do. But um, just to email me. And if people email me, a pitch deck is the you know ideal form and just say, will you take a look? You know, is this kind of thing you didn't invest in? I'm always happy to take a look. I, I always say yes to that question. I might not say yes to the, will you give me a million pounds question, <laughs> but I might tell you somebody else who will. And so that's how our world goes around. We try to share deals that we can't do with other people who can. Okay, thank you very much. 
Thank you. I mumbled that one. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, good morning, Project Kashmir's listener, whatever time of the day or night it is. It's 2018 in a, in a country called the United Kingdom in Europe. Um, if you're listening 100 years in the future, that's where we are now. Today I'm with Alex van Sommeron. Um, good afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon. Um, now, I could do a jumbled, uh, incompetent effort to introduce Alex, but rather than do that, Alex, could you introduce yourself in the way you would if you met someone in a broadly businessy context for example a, a, a you know an event or a, a a conference as opposed to a stranger on a train who might be a bit overwhelmed by what you're about to say <laughs> uh, so i'm alex van summer and i'm managing partner for early stage investing at amadeus capital partners and so that's a venture capital firm of about 21 years standing based between cambridge and london here in the uk okay now i first met alex well i, I first came across alex when he was running a workshop at a one week a week long uh, entrepreneurship course at the judge business school in cambridge I, and i think it was about 2007 or 2008 from memory so about 10 years ago and i remember then you were describing your journey through a business called encipher and there's uh, there's a few things i can remember about that that i'll come back to but could you tell me about encipher and also we're, we're interested in the entrepreneurial journey um, as I understand it, that was one of your, your early ventures. But what was Encipher and did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur before you set it up? Encipher was a uh, business built to uh, solve a problem that the internet had as it grew very quickly in the late 90s and uh, into the noughties, where security of websites depended on encryption, the protocol called SSL, which gives the little padlock icon to show when a website is secure, uses a lot of horsepower at the server end uh, of websites. And so getting enough customers served every second on a busy website was really a problem. And Encipher made a product which plugged into the server, took over the maths behind the cryptography that made that security work and helped it to go much faster. And that meant more people could be served more quickly. So we all got our uh, you know goods to the checkout faster and the company got paid faster. And that was a, a very successful business, and we were lucky to build it in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that, one of the things I remember from your your workshop or talk was how you you told me you told us then that um, someone said they'd give you the money to start the business, provided you produced a business plan, and you went down King's Parade and went into Heifers and bought a book called How to Write a Business Plan, which led led me to believe that possibly you weren't you weren't necessarily an experienced entrepreneur at the stage you got things going well I think, but, but i don't know i don't know exactly well that's it that's actually very interesting in fact encipher was my fourth business mm. and so the only respect in which i was an inexperienced entrepreneur was that i'd never had to write a business plan mm -hmm. in every other respect uh, i had had by that stage um probably 20 years of business building behind me and i'd always done it for myself and with my friends and therefore never really had to do any paperwork like that so it was only when venture capitalists became involved that they expected me to have a, a plan. And I thought, well, I better find out how to make such a plan. And I bought the book. In mm. fact, it's called The 24-Hour Business Plan. And I still have it on my bookshelf. And, uh, you know, I think I probably spent slightly more than 24 hours on it. Mm. But I did write my first business plan. And um, slightly to my amazement, that was enough to persuade the venture capitalists to give me a million pounds. 
And didn't they get 60% of the business or some other unlikely large slug of it in return? The offer originally was that they would buy a third of the business, 33% for that million pounds. But then it turned out that there was a bit of a tail and that actually the principal behind the money, a gentleman called Terry Matthews, a Welsh uh, entrepreneur and now billionaire, um, he basically said, you know, this is all very well. You can have 33% for a million pounds which would be a perfect good deal, in my opinion, for a you know, paper startup with no product. But he then decided, I, I think, frankly, we can say changed his mind, that um, he wanted another third of the equity to go to the company that he ran, Newbridge Networks. And he extolled the great benefits of this company owning another third of our business. Um, and that would be a great reseller channel, but mm -hmm. it would add all kinds of value. And, of course, we weren't impressed with this proposal. But in the end, we accepted it because it became clear that if we didn't actually accept it, we weren't going to get any money at all. And I think an important entrepreneurial maxim that I've taken to heart is take the money. Yes, take the money. And if, if it's the best available deal, it may be a shit deal, but it's the best available deal. And it wasn't a shit deal. You got a million, you got the money to get you going. And in the end, it probably spurred us to make the business much more valuable because we were so annoyed about having lost so much of the equity. Mm. So we sort of compensated by trying even harder. And in the end, in fact, it was a fantastic success. Mm -hmm. So although we probably made slightly more money for Terry Matthews and Newbridge Networks than they entirely deserved, mm -hmm. we, we did okay for ourselves. Yes, and there's more than one fair, there isn't such a thing as a perfectly fair deal anyway, is there? Exactly. Um, so I, I looked at your LinkedIn and you were at one of the famous uh, British public schools, i.e. for non-British aware listeners, that means private schools, Eton. And did you go straight into business? So which, which means either you're extremely brainy and a scholar or else you come from a background where there's a bit of privilege. Were you in the latter or the former category? And did you go into business straight after school or did you have a traditional, traditional route? What, what was your... And the, the background to this question is we're interested in the entrepreneurial journey. At what stage did you know you're going to go off the traditional, traditional train lines of a regular... A predictable, ordinary I started, life. I started working uh, when I was 14 in the school holidays for a local computer company here in Cambridge, Acorn Computer. And at that point, they'd made their first uh, single box computer, the Acorn Atom, and I was lucky enough to get one. And This must um, have been about 1979, 1980. 1980, very yeah. well done. So um, I got my mitts on one by asking. I didn't uh, pay for it or have it bought for me. I barged my way into Acorn and Herman Hauser gave me a computer basically to get rid of me. And that meant that I worked all of my holiday time with Acorn for many years. And when I, and at that point I was at, at school. So you were, you were, you'd obviously been interested in coding or something with computers prior to that. Exactly. So played with pocket calculators and, you know, got interested in computers at the time that they were starting to be accessible. Um, and to your question, uh, when it came to 17, and A-levels and the probability of going to university, um, th those A-levels, the English exams that get you into university, I actually flunked all my exams and I uh, went straight from school to work full-time at Acorn at 17. I never went to university um, and I was happy with that decision because I felt that the outcome one was working towards, you know, the point of maybe going to university was to get a job, but I'd already got a job. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took the job and uh, never looked back. 
Mm-hmm. And what, what, was your family environment supporting? Were you going against a kind of? Were your parents completely at ease with that, or was this a bit of a? I don't know, about, you, you... I don't know about completely at ease, but but the the key point I think is my dad also fancied himself an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. had stopped working for large corporations to start his own business, ran his own business from uh, literally the you know second bedroom mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that I might, you know, find my own way and, you know, be entrepreneurial was definitely not a problem, even if, you know, every parent, I think, would be upset if you throw away your exams and, you know, don't go to college when the school says you could. Okay. So, I mean, so for young, quite a lot of our audience are younger people. So for people listening to this now, I mean, obviously, one of the, the enormous change now is, of course, the internet, where if you want to acquire a skill and you're motivated, you can probably start today. Not you probably, you can certainly start today and you don't need to be in the hallowed halls of Cambridge or Oxford or MIT to get going at all. But if someone listening to this is you know, reasonably, reasonably intelligent and hasn't flunked their A-levels, do you think following your tracks and going and getting a job and getting really good at something independently is a, a viable choice given that you can, that you can go down that route? Or is it well, hard I to think, say? Uh, I'm going to answer the question in a slightly different way. It's very common for entrepreneurs to not feel that they fit within the normal educational mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those kinds of people. I'm impatient. Uh, I'm curious. I wanted to be able to go and explore the world. I could get paid perfectly well because I had taught myself something about computers. And so it seemed to me that, you know, those were all the things that mattered. Um, I don't think the opportunity or difficulty of entrepreneurship is really all that different now from at any point in the past. I think you're right that you can certainly acquire skills in different ways. But in the end, you know, watching a few YouTube videos doesn't tell you how to do something. I'm a, more of a believer in the 10,000 hours of practice mm-hmm. kind of model. That's, um, the, that's the Malcolm Gladwell book, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. In fact, there's, a, there's a, someone who I was just writing to today. He gave a talk at the TEDx Youth um, Conference organized by my son. He's a TEDx Youth organizer from Warsaw. Uh-huh. And he, he can code and does earn money doing that. And he... Um, his TEDx talk was called How to Learn Anything. And what he said was that, um, of course, you can go online and start finding courses on anything, but you need to find a roadmap. Right. And, so, and so he said, and so he described the process to find the roadmap, which was usually how to learn X plus Reddit. And then within Reddit, you'd find your... You find, but, yeah, but he said, you have, to find, you have to find the roadmap and then you have to follow it. And right. other people fail at the following. Yeah, roadmap. exactly. You know, so I don't, I don't think there really are shortcuts. I think some information is easy to come by. But I mean, I actually went to libraries and looked at books to teach myself some of what I know. I bought lots of books yes. uh, and I read them. And I probably did the computer science degree in mm. real life that I didn't do at university. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and now sort of jumping forward, I, there's one thing that I remember. Another thing I remember from your from your ignite talk about the role of luck, and you described how you were wandering around the lobby of a hotel in California, and you you could say you were lucky to meet the people from. I think it was Fidelity. Very well. But remember. but you um but you, it wasn't an accident that you were there. Do, do, do you, so can you just reflect on what you think about the role of luck in business? Because a lot of business people who are successful are quite modest and they say, you know, I was very lucky. But do you think luck really has a play or a role uh, or do I, you make your own? I think we've all got to accept that, um, you know, stuff happens uh, outside <coughs> your control. And uh, so some people never have 
the stuff happen around them that makes their lives easier. Some people have it happen and don't grab the opportunity. And the people who are successful entrepreneurs are the people in the middle of that Venn diagram. They're the people who are able to see the opportunity in the circumstances that they find themselves in and take it. And you have to reach out and take it. And so that's where the, you know, old cliche version is that, you know, luck favors the prepared or whichever version you like. You've got to be willing to uh, grab the opportunity when it's there, but you do also have to have those opportunities come to you. So as you say, the story that uh, I told you then about uh, getting the first business from Fidelity by being in the lobby of a hotel in San Francisco where a conference that was relevant was taking place. You know, I had to go to San Francisco. I had to be in the lobby. But I also, you know, knew that I had to nail some customers and I grabbed them as they went by by reading their badges. And if they looked interesting, I, you know, got them excited about my product. So that's that's that is the entrepreneurial process is to capture those opportunities when they present themselves. That's right. And, and so not be, and I, this is something that just being ready to go up and talk to strangers in certain circumstances, you can do a great deal online. But if you can't actually present your idea to a stranger in a way that they want to listen that eliminates you from a lot of business and i think that means that that that's how we come to recognize the difference between people who are great innovators who often are the kind of people who are really good at some technical thing but not actually very comfortable engaging with customers Mm -hmm. and then you know the kinds of people like me who are more sales oriented who are extroverts who are happy to go and randomly Mm -hmm. start conversations with people they've never met before and try to sell them something and you need that combination within a business. It doesn't all have to come from a single person. It very rarely does. Actually, you end up in a team where different people represent different skills. I was lucky in all of my business success to work with my brother. My brother had the traditional route. He, in fact, had a more challenging educational background. He's dyslexic, but he actually ended up at Cambridge. He took a PhD, he got a first in computer science at Cambridge. And, you know, he's a top class intellectual of the traditional mold, but we work together really well because we have complementary skills. Yes, and I'm sure you're aware of Gary Vaynerchuk. And, you know, he talks a great deal about self-awareness and recognising that in yourself and then not being gutted if you don't have the salesy personality, but finding finding a business partner who does is is, is the obvious workaround. Exactly. And, you know, so that's 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 the smart thing to do. And if you're very lucky and it's fairly unusual, you can do that with a member of your family or two members of your family. I had my wife working in the business as well. She had a marketing background. And if you're so introverted, you can't even imagine persuading someone to go into business with you to be your business partner. Then, then it's you, going to be hard to it's, be it's, it's going to be successful. It's going, it's going to be hard. And now you're on the other side. As a, in Amadeus, you're, the fund is early stage fund, I believe, seed level. So you're looking at people in the way that someone might have once looked at you with right. your business plan. Right. And so... so you know, obviously, do you demand a business plan? But what what are the most important things you look for in the people for an eye for to actually in the people you meet, as opposed to in the quality of the idea? We, we, we try to we try to spot the kind of people who behave in the way I was just describing. We try and spot the teams of people who have a good mix of skills across the team. It doesn't have to be complete, but it has to have some representation of the various qualities we talked about, and it has to have people in it who you get the impression are going to crawl over broken glass to get to the prize. Mm-hmm. They're going to do whatever it takes. And they're sufficiently fired up about how right they are about their thing that they're going to make a success of mm-hmm. even a very difficult situation. And then the next two things are how big the market opportunity could be for whatever the thing is. And then the final piece is, and how clever the innovation is. How much 
defensible intellectual property it's got. So IP, IP is important for you? I'm a tech investor, a deep technology investor. I'm very IP focused. I'm not interested in apps on mobile phones. I'm not interested in shoe shopping websites. I'm not interested in marketplaces. I'm interested in crunchy science and you know solutions to hard problems with innovative technology. Okay. Um, and so if you look back and think about lessons you've learned, maybe things that you wish you'd learned earlier, are there, th- are there slight major, major moments where you thought, wow, now I know that, I'm going to do things differently? Are there sort of um, are, are there lessons you've learned or the things you wish you'd done differently over the last 20, 30 years of your business career? Um, I think, I mean, 20, 20 hindsight is obviously fantastic. You sort of look back and, um, and, and say, uh, well, you know, uh, now that I've come on 10 years or something, you know, I might have done that differently. Um, I mean, look, I, I think I've made lots of mistakes just like everybody does. And uh, so, you know, the list is endless. Um, I probably didn't maintain good relations with my investors all the time. And actually, it turns out that's a good thing to do. And if you don't do it, then it makes your life a lot harder. Um, I probably negotiated poor deals with customers. I probably didn't treat all of my staff as well as I wish I could have done, you know, but in the end, I think, I mean, it's a journey which is not a straight line and you are just going to uh, have to learn as you go. And frankly, if you're self-aware enough to say, wow, I wish I'd done that better, then, you know, actually that's probably nine-tenths of the battle to be able to do it right next time. Mm-hmm. So relations with investors, clients and staff, these are some of the key areas. And they're all people things, yeah, right? All, I mean, the people. technical stuff, you can always, you know, read a book, hire somebody to, to do for you. Mm-hmm. But the people interactions are, in the end, you know, how the world really works. And actually the challenge there is um, there's always probably things you, you could do better or differently, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, you have to work with the you know circumstances you find yourself in, mm-hmm. and uh, you do quite a lot of things apart from your day job. You're on, you've been on various government committees. I think is UKTI and the Prince's Trust and um, a museum. There's a local museum here. How, how do you decide how to spend your time? Because I think time management for successful people is a really interesting thing. So I, I do. You, do you have like a really tight diary and a process, or do you just go with your gut feel, or a bit of both, or um, well, I think uh, the, you, the go to, you, you go to TED conferences as well. So you're, I, yeah. I used to go to TED conferences. I mean, I, I go to diverse conferences. I, I, I actually stopped going to anything that I've been to sort of more than three times. Mm-hmm. I, I, I make a point of just saying that was interesting. Now I'll do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I think the first thing is I'm constantly trying to mix it up. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the the next thing is. Um, yes, I, I have an insanely busy diary. The, the problem with being a venture capitalist is that everybody thinks they want your time and nobody has any respect for whether or not you actually have any spare. <laughs> so um, everybody believes that they deserve an hour and, you know, surely you can fit them in sometime soon. And um, actually, you know, the business of being a venture capitalist is principally about saying yes to opportunities. So generally, I just have to say yes. And then it turns out that the diary is completely full. Um, so that's my day spoken for. I do do some things with my evenings, um, which aren't work. And um, those are really just about personal passions and interest. And, and they too evolve. And I worked with the Prince's Trust for many years as a patron and donor. Uh, I helped mentor uh, people who needed help. And, you know, the Prince's Trust is very good at that. But uh, actually, I've moved my attention on to, to other things since. More recently, I've been working with ActionAid, who are particularly focused. I supported a project in Kenya on 
helping women who have problems with violence and uh, need a channel through which to report violence so they can get the help that they deserve. Um, and we use a bit of technology using text messaging to uh, enable that to, to work better. And it's actually become a really satisfying and successful project. And then, as you say, I work with uh, the museum nearby at Kettle's Yard here in Cambridge, which is a beautiful uh, modern and contemporary art museum. Uh, so it has a mixture of a, a, you know, some old collection from sort of late 20th century uh, UK and, um, you know, more, more kind of brand new stuff that's uh, constantly changing. And I helped to raise some money for it. And I, I guess, you know, part of that is selfish. I, I think it's fun and interesting. And, and part of it obviously is just about, you know, being a citizen in the community. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for that. There's just a, a couple of fin final questions. If someone's listening and they, they sort of f feel they're entrepreneurial, but they haven't found their idea yet, and they're aware of the fact that if you don't have a great idea, you shouldn't start just on doing anything. Is, is there any sort of piece of advice that you think is like a kind of core thing that entrepreneurs need to... If someone listening to you could benefit from your life's experience, one, one piece of advice you could give to someone maybe at an earlier stage in their life than you are? I think that... Principally, it's about grabbing a chance when your gut tells you that it's there. So, you know, you will be an entrepreneur if you are the kind of person who says, I really think somebody would buy, you know, a product which does X or a solution to problem Y. And you actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key thing is not to box yourself in and say, you know, somebody else has probably thought of that. You know, uh, somebody else will do that better than me. Uh, I, I don't have time. It, you're only really an entrepreneur if when you have an inspiration, and you will have inspirations from time to time, but if you actually follow through on them, and if you do that and run with it, the worst that happens is you turn out to be wrong and you fail and you can start again. The best that happens is that you'll turn it into a great success. Okay, so that's very, very good advice. Um, is there anything, like looking forward, is there anything that's going to happen in the next five or ten years that you think will, like, are you sort of a forecast of sort of big technological, social, political changes coming that you think really might change the world for the better or for the worse that you're worried about? So like on the macro scale, like, like the future of the world or the future of Britain, Europe, Cambridge, wherever your footprint is. And personally, is there anything that's challenging you? Is there any big change coming up in your life or something that you want to do or you might manage to do that, you know, some ambition that you're still working on that hasn't yet been cracked? Well, I think that um, you can't have a, a European podcast without talking about Brexit. And uh, I certainly think that uh, we're going to make our lives very much harder in the UK if we make it more difficult for people from Europe to come to the UK and join our companies and bring their brains and their sweat and help make our companies more successful. So I'm incredibly frustrated and unhappy about that uh, development, and it looks as if it's really going to happen. Flown from Krakow to demonstrate in the march in London right. the day after tomorrow. So I, I couldn't agree with you. We're more. on the we're on the same page. So I think that you know that's uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I, I think all human beings on the planet should be worried about climate change. And I think that we are already experiencing with, you know, strangely unseasonal weather and hurricanes and so forth, some of the implications of that. And uh, so we need to, you know, very much throw the gears into reverse and, and really make an effort to do something to change that situation. And that is not being helped by um, you know, obtuse people uh, like the President of the United States, you know, trying to pretend that it's not uh, something that's caused by humans. So that's, you know, problem number two. Um, but the good news is, I think that 
the um, general uh, opportunity for people in the world is actually being enhanced by what we can do with machines, what we can do with software, what we can do with robotics, uh, and the experiences that we can have uh, with some kinds of technology uh, like augmented reality. So I'm actually a big believer in some of the positive benefits uh, of technology, and I think that they have the capacity to help everybody on the planet. The final challenge is to actually enable them to really be accessible to everybody on the planet. At the moment, there are billions of people who don't have access to fresh water and you know safe housing, let alone the internet, never mind you know virtual reality goggles. So we actually have you know, a lot more important work to do, frankly, than investing in technology in making the world a better place for everybody. And for me, that's you know ultimately more important. That's why I spend some of my time doing that, besides needing to pay the bills through my day job. Mm-hmm. So that's the bit of the macro. And what about you personally? Are there any challenges, unrealized things that when you... Because quite often, if you ask a successful person, the really interesting thing is what's next? Because it's almost like once you've done it, that's bang. Is there anything in your future that... Sort of well, the great thing about the, the huge privilege of being uh, a venture capital investor is that you get to meet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of smart people who are incredibly energized uh, about their thing, their idea, and they're working super hard to make it a success. And I think I get a lot of pleasure from interacting with those people, and I learn a lot from those people. So that's that's fantastic. So um, no, I don't think there's any kind of you know really big thing that I'm trying to achieve um, that you know I. I'd be uh, trying to share. I think it's more, uh, I'd love to be able to continue to do the thing that I do. I've done it uh, now for uh, eight years, coming on to nine years. I'm hoping that I'll be doing it in another 10 years. That'll be the longest I've done any one kind of thing in my whole life. Okay, so we've, I, I was going to ask you if you enjoyed your job, you've answered that question. Absolutely. <laughs> Completely. I, I totally do, and I couldn't get up in the morning and do it every day if I didn't. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. Um, so well. Thank you very much for being 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 on the show. If if someone listening to this uh, wanted to get in touch with you, either for a business project or anything else, what would be your suggested way of them doing that? Uh, well, the first thing I would suggest is that they actually read my LinkedIn profile, which is easy to find. And there's only one Alex Van Sommeren that's a venture capitalist at Amadeus Capital Partners. And the specific answer is that my email address is easily found there, and uh, they should just send me email. Um, not a uh, invitation to friend them on LinkedIn when I've never met them. That's not something I do. But um, just to email me. And if people email me, a pitch deck is the you know ideal form. And just say, will you take a look? You know, is this kind of thing you didn't invest in? I'm always happy to take a look. I, I always say yes to that question. I might not say yes to the will you give me a million pounds question. <laughs> but I might tell you somebody else who will. And so that's how our world goes round. We try to share deals that we can't do with other people who can. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, I've mumbled that one. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectcashmere.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward.
interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.